It's good to be back here. Um, you can tell a lot about a culture by what it enjoys paying attention to and focusing on. And if you actually watch primetime television, which I'll admit I don't, and it's not because of any particular virtue on my part. It's just um, with a two-year-old at home, life's a little too insane to actually turn on the TV on a regular basis. But if you, but I, I know everything I know about television by reading um, television reviews in the New York Times, which irritates my wife. But she's like, you don't even watch these programs. Why are you reading the reviews? But it's my way of keeping in touch. There seem to be two primary uh, preoccupations for our TV shows. Um, sex and work. And that's what we're going to talk about today as you paid attention to uh, the scripture reading in First Thessalonians beginning in chapter 4. Uh, Dick, as he sent me notes for what had been preached the last three weeks, said, you know, you'll notice um, you're preaching about sex, Greg. CBC needs to hear things about this, so have fun with it. <laughs> so we will. You'll notice as Paul uh, dives into uh, this section of this text, he goes, finally, brothers and sisters, and he's beginning the transition from the theological context of how the gospel creates these communities that then begin to um, bring the good news, life, and love to the communities around them. And that was a lot of chapter one, that um, because the gospel entered in such a powerful way and in such a, a lived-in way in Thessalonica, everyone around them testified to the fact that the gospel had arrived with power. And Paul uses that to validate his own preaching and his own apostolic authority because he says, I don't need to prove who I am to you. Everyone knows the proof of my um, apostolic work by the very way that you've chosen to live. And then um, in chapter 2, he continues to, um, uh, and I think uh, David Deal dealt with this a little bit, of uh, began to engage some of the confrontation problems that they were facing. And in chapter 3, uh, Dick said, this is how it's going to change the relationships we have. Um, we're going to have deeply felt community together because of the nature of the gospel. And like a lot of other of Paul's letters, he switches midway from these theological ways that um, have influenced the life of the community that he's speaking to to dealing with some of the practical problems. And so he says, look, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now, we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what? instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting that Paul emphasizes the instructions which are to follow. <clears throat> and he emphasizes it by mentioning three things. These are part of the apostolic teaching I gave you when I was there. You've already heard this, he says. So it's nothing new, and it's all part of hearing the gospel like you did in the beginning. These were given under the authority of the Lord Jesus, he points out, um, in verse 2, we gave you these right by the authority of Jesus. This isn't just me talking of what I prefer, the cultural expectations or practices of Jewish people. This is actually what the Lord Jesus requires of us. So it's part of the apostolic teaching. It's part of what has been given to us under the authority of Jesus. And it's being reemphasized under his authority again. So he says, I'm not ashamed to tell you this one more time. You need to hear it and then live it out more and more. These are commands, he says. They're not just suggestions. They're not merely encouragements. They're exhortations to live in a particular way. What's striking to me is this very little phrase that comes in Paul's, uh, in that first verse. He says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. So this is how you want to live if you want to please God. How does that make you feel? 
I think the way you emotionally respond to this might give you a quick peek into your embraced theology rather than your confessed theology. Because I think for many of us, when we hear, you have to do this to please God, immediately what pops into your head, certainly popped into mine as I was preparing this talk, is God is kind of an instructor with impossibly high standards. Right? A coach who has impossibly high goals, a perfectionist parent, I won't try to project too hard here, or a boss who is completely impossible to please because the list and demands are so great and the time and resources available so small, you are just bound to disappoint. And the mental thought is, I have to do this exactly right in order to please him in the exact right way. For many of us, myself included, when I hear, you need to do this to please God, this is what pops into my head. A kind of OCD controlling person who's an idealist to boot. The alternative, though, I think when you think about what does it mean to do this to please God is a completely different kind of relationship. Not an exacting parent or an impossible to please teacher who grades absolutely on this very narrow curve, but a relationship of love and delight. I find I'm willing to embrace very strict standards on behalf of my daughter. When she was first born, um, I used to call uh, people like, what's it like being a new father? And I said, it's like we've invited a cult leader to our house. She wakes us up at all hours of the night, disrupts our sleep patterns. We're dazed. We're confused all the time. She's screaming at you, screaming at you, and demanding absolute obedience to her every wish. I then expects absolute love and, uh, love and uh, affection. And I thought, and it's working, right? I mean, she's a fantastic cult leader that age. But what I'm, descri- what I'm discovering is that um, I'm willing to follow through on exacting standards of behavior that she requires for me, not because I'm worried about failing her, but because I delight in pleasing her. So in context, I don't like to dance. Actually, I'm not one for a lot of movements at all, as you can tell. Um, Even to the point of when we were getting married, my wife said, you know, can we dance uh, at the reception? And I was like, I hate to dance. And thankfully, because of the timing of our wedding and the limitation of the reception room, there was no room for dancing, so I didn't even have to do it. But at one point, my wife asked me, so if I asked you in front of all of our friends to dance with me at our wedding, would you do it then? I looked at her and I said, yes, I would, as long as you were really comfortable in knowing that within an hour of our marriage, you were willing to shame me in front of all of our friends to get what you want, I'd be willing to do it. And then she said, why am I marrying an attorney? And I said, I just want to be clear what's happening. I hate dancing, even to the point of being willing to disappoint my wife on our wedding day. But I find with my daughter, who's obsessed with me dancing with her right now, I'm happy to do it. To the point that we've developed this increasingly complicated choreographed kick line, uh, chorus line, kick line routine to Sandra Boychen's song, Cows. I won't even... I won't even describe it to you for fear of scarring your memories. I'm sure if any of you think of me doing a kickstep with my daughter to a music called Cows, if you're feeling scarred right now, the elders would be happy to pray for you after the service. But I'm willing to do that, and um, we polka to Shall We Dance from The King and I. My wife has just introduced her to um, I Could Have Danced All Night from My Fair Lady. Our daughter gets a lot of Broadway musicals, very few Christian choruses. I apologize. But... I find as soon as she goes, moo-moo, which is her word for music, and we go up there and she grabs the CD, she knows exactly which one, she slaps it into the CD player and pushes it and points to the floor, 
I know what the command is, and I delight in doing it, even though it leaves me gasping. I'm humiliated because I know our neighbors can see us through the windows. But for her smile, it's all worth it, including the terrible jazz hand thing that we do at the end, which I won't even begin to describe. When you were given commands, do this in order to please God. The way we emotionally respond to that will tell us a great deal about the God we worship. Not the God we say we worship, but the God we actually worship in our hearts. If for some of us it feels oppressive, then perhaps what we need to do is re-engage ourselves in the story of Scripture because while it's true the law is there to point out our failing, while it's true that God is holy and therefore we should be holy, though it's true that he's the absolute judge and Paul makes no bones about pointing that out in verse 6 of this passage, another way of approaching to please God is to do things because you are so motivated out of your love for him and his love for you that you delight in seeing him smile, that you bring him pleasure in our attempt to fulfill the law, rather than worrying about whether we fail. And if the image of God is Father, is it all accurate, then I would suggest the desire to see a smile of delight may be more true to what God desires than worrying about his frown of disappointment at this point. And I say that in part because as we begin particularly talking about the issue of sex, The issue brings such deep feelings of shame or failure for most of us, whether because of what we're doing now or what we've um, experienced in the past, that I think it's worth talking about the positive goal that Paul sets forward, which is bring pleasure to God rather than just the feelings of failure that I wanted to land there for a moment. So Paul says, in order to please God, live in this way. Then he begins to talk about work and sex. Now, It's an odd combination of things, frankly. John Stott, though, a British pastor, theologian, author, pointed out that work and sex are actually two of the fundamental good gifts of God to his creation in the uh, book of Genesis. That prior to the fall, this is how God chose to bless us. And so maybe it's not accidental that Paul begins to reflect on creational goodness and how it's been... um, marred in human um, experience as he's been reflecting on the gospel. Because what the gospel does is it enters the world is it begins to restore the things that are broken, renew those things which have been destroyed or corrupted, and brings wholeness to where there's um, weakness. And so Paul says in verses 3 through 8, look, here's the deal. Avoid sexual impropriety. He's just very clear, right? It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way which is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that this, in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, If it's true that Paul chooses two things, work and sex, which relate back to creational goodness, then maybe before we talk about the failures, we need to talk about the creational goodness that God intended. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 2, 18 through 25, because I think it's there that sets the framework for how Paul thinks about human sexuality and the good that God intends, not just the bad he intends us to avoid. And as you do so, let's think also just in our own culture of how our language about love and sex has changed over time. 
Because I think it begins to set the context for some of the problems that we experience that Paul would want us to address today, even as we think about the broader context of what God intended in the beginning. Right? The classical biblical word for um, human sexuality and the act of having sex was to know one another. Right? It's an intimate word which expresses both knowledge, which is intellectual but personal. The, the activity such right, is fully engaging in the whole of who you are. It's an intellectual, emotional, spiritual, and a physical activity. And to know one another, to be engaged with one another, to experience one another was um, what the biblical word was pushing us toward. A euphemism, admittedly, but a profound euphemism. Think about how those euphemisms have changed over time. From knowing one another, it was reduced to, though still not bad in the 1960s, to making love, right? Engaging at least one part of your personhood, if not all parts of your personhood. It's moved there to, in more recent terms, just getting some. A transaction from embracing and knowing a person to actually acquiring something to just doing it, if you hang out with college students or high school students today, right? From intimate engagement with each other to just merely a transaction, to the point that, at least in campus culture, you talk about having a friend with benefits, a lot like having an employer who has employee benefits. But rooted biblically in what God intends is a picture in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And it says, now, the Lord God said after he created Adam, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man, and the man said, Now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What's striking to me in verse 18 is Adam dwelt with God, without sin, without shame, without any barrier. And yet, when God looks at Adam by himself, he goes, this isn't good. It's the one not good thing before sin enters the world. It's not good because humanity wasn't meant to be alone. Our desires for connection, for intimacy, for um, relationship are actually natural and inbuilt in us. Even if we have a great relationship with God, we will struggle with loneliness. And the folk who say, well, you know, I'm alone, but I have God, it's all enough, is really the exception rather than the rule, because when God looked at Adam, he said, it's still not good for him to be alone. Our desire for connection, which is expressed both um, romantically, as well as in family relationship, as well as in friendship, but also sexually, is a normal part of human existence. It's God-given. It's reflective of our desire to be in community, which makes sense because we were created in the image of a God who lives in community with himself. That's why, in the end, I don't think um, evangelical sexual ethics can be reduced merely to body parts. It can't be merely um, absorbed with what goes where when. But instead, it's designed to engage us in relationship with one another, which is partially why um, 
Christian sexual ethics has often struggled with the issue of masturbation because in the end, the issue of masturbation is it doesn't, it doesn't connect you with anyone. In the end, it's about self-satisfaction. It's turned in on itself. John White, an author, once called it uh, sex on a desert island. But in the end, all of our relationships are designed to draw us outward into relationship with people. In verses 19 and 20, Adam has had a chance to survey all of creation. It says there's no suitable helper found for Adam. In all creation, um, there's nothing that quite meets his need. Now, the word suitable helper um, has unfortunate connotations in English of somebody who'd be an incredibly good valet or maid, right? Or for those of you who've ever had to cook with a small child, when you have a little helper, it's a blessing only in the abstract, Right? Oh, what a fantastic helper you are. But the word in Hebrew actually refers to um, suitable means somebody of equivalent eminence, of equivalent um, authority, of equivalent uh, prestige. And the word helper is a word that um, of the 18 or so times it's used in scripture, about 15 to 16 of those times it refers to God. You all know the songs in the uh, Psalms, right? God is my help and my strength. God is my help and my salvation. The term helper doesn't mean somebody who comes and fetches things for you. The term helper means the one who supplies what's missing. The one who supplies what you yourself cannot provide. That's why God is our help and our strength, because we are weak. That's why God is our help and our salvation, because we cannot save ourselves. And so when Adam is looking for a suitable helper, he's looking for one who is equivalent in authority and in dignity with him, who supplies what he himself cannot supply. It's the perfect complementary partner uh, for who Adam is. That's why in the end, as we think about our sexual ethic, right, the positive, we've been designed for relationships with somebody who complements us in everything that we cannot provide for ourselves. Why, as we look at um, evangelical sexual ethics, um, in the end, homosexual activity then becomes problematic. Now, unfortunately, And to our shame, I think, as a church, people have often reduced that to God created Adam and Eve rather than Adam and Steve. And I think it's such a terrible reduction of what Scripture actually intends, as well as um, wounding in unhelpful, unfair, and unchristian ways. But fundamentally, there is a truth that it's as male and female in our differences coming together that we image God more clearly and more appropriately than any other way. The context then for Adam and Eve to come together as we think about sexual ethics, right, which draws us together and then unites us in complementarity come in verses 21 through 25. When Adam sees Eve, immediately he bursts into the first love poetry that we have in scripture. Some of the earliest love poetry we have recorded in human history, right? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now, you would never see that at a Hallmark card today, right? I mean, that would never make it like, happy Valentine's, dear bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. People would just be like, okay, (laughs) a little crude. But what Adam is saying is, you are the only thing in creation, the only thing in which I see identity, in which I experience a sense of intimacy because I see you and I recognize what's truest about myself and what's truest about you are one. We're human together. What Adam seems to be affirming in this um, sense of deep intimacy that he sees with Eve is he's identifying with her from kind of the gut level, right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, is that he's finally found an equivalent partner with whom he has complete identification and caring with. In the end, 
what I think he's acknowledging is I finally found a partner, not a plaything. Because you play with animals, but you partner with people. And he's saying, you are unlike anything else in the world. I can rule over, I could subdue, I can enjoy the animal creation. But you, I share something with you that I share with no one else. That's why I think for evangelicals, pornography then becomes troublesome. Because in the end, pornography, whether the physical pornography that men will tend to indulge with or the emotional pornography, the romantic chick flicks that women tend to indulge with, both of them are troublesome because they end up using the other gender for their own satisfaction, right? So in physical pornography, you create images designed to satisfy you in a physical way. And in the emotional pornography, um, men are just wittier, funnier, more caring, more nurturing, and more attentive than they ever are in real life in the same way that the bodies of the people in physical pornography have no resemblance to people in real life either. And you end up using these images of who people are in order to satisfy yourself rather than find a partner with who you actually are in real relationship with, who you are fully engaged with, not because of what they can do for you, but what you can, how you can serve them and care for them. It goes on to say that Adam identifies this person as bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And it, the scripture comments on this in verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So that if intimacy is one, um, uh, sorry, one structure in this relationship, commitment is, right? There's a public change in the relationship because they leave one family and create a new family unit. Allegiances have changed from uh, the mother and father to the wife and to the new family. And all other relationships become relativized. Um, This is problematic, right, where um, dysfunctional families, uh, the allegiance is still to originally uh, your parents rather than to your spouse. Anybody who's ever had a difficult relationship with an in-law knows exactly the tension this causes. Not that any of you have ever experienced that, I'm sure. But all other relationships get relativized, and then it affects the way we relate to one another. So a good friend of mine, as she was dating um, a few guys before marriage, she said, the number one rule I have when I go into these relationships is at the end of this relationship or during the course of this relationship, will the person I'm dating be a better spouse to the person they end up marrying or not because of the things that we did together? It's a little complicated, but she said, in the end, with this guy I'm dating... I want him to be the best spouse possible for whoever he meets. And that should guide the way I interact. So will his wife be blessed or cursed by the things I do with him, inflict upon him, or how I relate to him now? If in our dating relationship he learns to honor me as a woman better, if I have appropriate boundaries, if I have, um, relate to him physically and emotionally in a healthier way, then even if this relationship ends, his wife will be better off because he had it. He'll have matured emotionally. He'll have demonstrated self-control physically. He'll have better integrity, integrity intellectually. He'll be a better person for it. And she said, it, this, this standard may not work for everyone, but she thought, until we say I do, he's not mine. And so I hold him in trust for the person he says I do to. I would like to be that person if we're dating, she said. But if I'm not... I want to be able to look his wife in the eye one day and know that because I was involved in his life, she's being blessed. Because it's for this reason the man leaves his father and mother and joins this one person publicly in a permanent way. 
this is what drives actually evangelical, I think, um, sexual ethics around premarital sex. That until that commitment has occurred, not every aspect of our humanity can be engaged. Not all of who we are can be given away yet. And then, weirdly enough, it ends this section with, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. If intimacy is one part of the boundary that helps create healthy human sexuality and commitment is the other, I want to say that trust is the final context. Right? To be naked before one another and to be completely unashamed assumes absolute acceptance of one another. It's showing everything that you would normally hide. And being unembarrassed, not only unembarrassed, but delighting in it rather than hiding it. Those of you who are married, um, I'm sure, remember the first experience of having to be naked in front of a spouse. How awkward, how uncomfortable, and yet delightful it was. Right? All of the things that you would normally hide, sexual arousal from another person, suddenly are actually something that you should enjoy. All of the things that you would never talk about before, about how your bodies function, about what time of the month it is, have to become a part of the normal conversation. And the only safe context in which to do this is where there's absolute acceptance, where nothing um, is funny in an awkward way, but it's delightful. Where as our body changes, as our shape begins to change, as the wear and tear begins to happen, those places of wear and tear, the sagging, the wrinkles, actually become objects of delight because they mark shared life together. A shared experience together of life lived together. We delight in them rather than withdrawing from them. This is why um, I think in part this being naked and unashamed, absolute acceptance um, drives some of our sexual ethic around why um, the church teaches it's not proper to... Um, marry or date outside of the Christian faith. I remember talking with a student from Columbia University one summer at our week-long um, leadership training camp, and she said, my chapter is making me talk to you, so he I'm here. And I thought, well, great, I'm glad you're very open to this. <laughs> and she said, so here's the deal. Um, I'm a leader on the fellowship, I'm leading a Bible study, and I'm dating a non-Christian guy. And the people at the fellowship are very frustrated by this, they think I should step down, they wanted me to talk to you. And she said, so here's the deal, he's a good man. He's a really good man. He's never once asked me not to go to church or be involved in university. In fact, he encourages me to. He's never once tempted me sexually. He honors the boundaries we've set. He's never pressed them. He's pressed them in, um, he's actually refrained from pressing them in ways that the Christian men I've dated in the past have pressed them. He lives more ethically, more compassionately, more justly than almost any other Christian I know. He's a good man. He affirms my faith. What's the problem with this relationship? You know, you're kind of stuck at that point a little, aren't you? Well, I don't know. He sounds like a better person than most of the guys I know at church. And so I did what I normally do in those situations. I prayed desperately for an answer while she was talking. And what I ended up saying to her was this. I believe he's a good man. He sounds delightful. I wish he were here at camp. I would love to meet him. I think he's probably a better man than most of the boys that you have in your fellowship. And I apologize for that. We're working on discipleship as well as we can, but you still have boys. They aren't men yet. I, I acknowledge that. But here's the deal. Here's what's troubling to me. Um, if he looked at you and said, I want you only because you're beautiful, would you take him? 
If he didn't care that you were a smart student, that you were at Columbia University, but he's like, I just like your body, would that be enough for you? And she, of course, is being offended. He would never do that. I said, I know, but just play this mental game out with me. Um, if he said, I only love you for your mind, your body, eh. discouraging when I look at you. Would that be enough for you? Why is it okay then for him to love your body and your mind, but to actually believe that you have no soul? Why is it that the thing that you claim as a Christian that's the most central orienting feature of your life, your love and commitment to Jesus Christ, he only um, can affirm from the outside but doesn't even believe it's real. I believe God intends for you to be in a relationship with somebody who affirms all of who you are, body, mind, and soul. And I think you're settling for somebody who only loves you for your body and your mind. But what you really want is somebody who will love you for all. That's my problem with your relationship. That the most important thing in your life he can't even admit exists. And so the challenge before you, I said, was can you wait for God to bring you somebody who will love all of who you are, affirm everything about you, and delight in the things that you delight in, rather than merely tolerate and mildly encourage? So this is the context that Paul's working with, right? Human sexual desire is normal and natural, God-given. It drives us into relationship. It's designed to occur in the context of commitment, of trust, and of intimacy. And in that case, then it's healthy and beautiful. And Paul then goes, look, um, don't live in a way which is sexually immoral. Um, because God intended you for holiness. He intended you to experience these things, but he intended you to experience them in a particular way which is holy and which is honorable, which brings delight in the right ways to you and to your partner. What's interesting to me then, Paul, with this context in mind, grounds his concern for sexual purity, not in our own struggles, right? He doesn't spend like this gigantic list of sexual sin, which he does in other uh, books, um, Corinthians and other places, but he actually grounds it in two things. I care about this for you because I want you to love your neighbor and I want you to love God appropriately. I want you to love your neighbor because he says when you take sexual advantage of someone else, whether just intellectually in your fantasy life or physically in an inappropriate relationship, what he actually seems to be saying is you're taking advantage of another brother or sister, both the person that you're using, but their intended spouse as well. Right in verse 6, and at this matter, no one should wrong his brother implied or sister or take advantage of him. Don't misuse the people in whom you are supposed to be relationship with, both the person you are sexually attracted to as well as anybody else that they're relating to. Remember Dick's message from last week where he talked about the quality and the depth of relationship that you're supposed to have in the Christian family. Don't abuse those relationships by misusing people sexually, he says. Then he says, Don't misuse it, not just because of the love you have for your neighbor, but also the love you have for God. Because you shouldn't live as pagan people, he says, verse 5, but instead respond with joy to God's will in verse 3 and God's call, verse 7. Out of respect for God's judgment in verse 6 and out of respect for God's Holy Spirit in verse 8, because rejecting his teaching is rejecting God. From his call and his intention to us to be holy like God is holy to the gift of the Holy Spirit himself and recognizing that God is a holy God who has standards because of all of this live in a way that actually brings pleasure to God so that when he sees you engaging in sexuality appropriately, he's pleased, not disappointed. Well, Paul then goes on to say, now about brotherly love, which seems like a huge transition, but again, he's framed his sexual ethic in terms of 
out of respect for one another, do these things. So out of respect for one another, this is how you're supposed to work in verses 9 through 12. And I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. Um, Now about your brotherly love, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, right? This is part of the trumpet call of the gospel that's gone out in chapter 1. Yet we urge you, brothers, do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Well, let's set the context again. I don't know about you, but Sunday afternoon, a weird sort of heaviness descends upon my soul. A grayness, a damp blanket of discouragement. Because I know that the weekend is over and the work week will start tomorrow. My younger sister used to refer to it as SNA, Sunday night anxiety. And she said, we'd be eating, and she goes, we'd be eating dinner together as a family. She goes, SNA has arrived. I have to work tomorrow. Now, this is actually a disappointing thing because I love the work I do. I actually enjoy everything about it. I love watching college students come to faith. I love training InterVarsity staff to do the things they're supposed to do. And yet, me as well, when I think, oh, the weekend is over, back to work. But if we sigh with the weight and weariness of work, I think we betray the glory and the majesty of what God intended. And I'm not going to spend nearly as much time there, but... What God intends for work is described in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, right? We are created in the image of a God who works. Other than his self-existence and the fact that he speaks, the, first, the third thing we know about God in Scripture is he's a God who works. He's a God who makes, who creates, who shapes, and who designs. He's a God who's engaged in activity and work. And we are made in his image, and then God blesses the people of the world as he creates them. He says, go forth, fill the world and subdue it. Till the soil, make it fruitful, engage in work because I engage in work and you're made in my image so you work too. And this is my blessing to you, not a part of the curse. Well, Paul frames this section again in terms of how the Christian love should actually shape the way we engage with uh, work in verse 9. Right? Because, so love one another, which you're already doing, do more of it. And then he has this funny statement about work. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Some people have said the context is people thought Christ was coming back, why bother working? It doesn't quite fit the details here, because clearly um, some people have done that other people are working. What uh, more recent scholars have said is... Um, in Roman times, there was this client-patron relationship where rich people would um, essentially uh, hand out money to uh, their clients. Those clients that every morning would come greet them as they were waking up and take instruction from them because it was a largely democratic city in Thessalonica. When um, a public motion came up that your patron wanted to succeed, everybody who was his client would then vote for their patron's uh, proposal. Every time the patron needed basically a posse or um, an entourage, all the clients would show up. So if you were walking through um, you know, the main street of town, you wanted to show that you were important, your clients would naturally just form a mob around you. So people were like, oh, look, there's a very rich man because he has this huge entourage falling around him. And what would happen in that case is you were then involved politically in the things that your patron wanted you to be involved in. Um, as well as you stopped working because you could get your uh, daily dole from going to your patron. And what Paul seems to be saying is this. Avoid being used by other people and using other people. 
Avoid using other people, your patron, to get what you want so that you don't have to work because work is a good gift of God. And avoid being dependent on your patron. Actually do something for yourself. Work with your hands, which was an ignoble thing for the Romans and the Greeks, but a noble thing from the Jewish tradition and from Christian teaching. Don't avoid laboring and avoid being used and then dependent on this other person and then um, being used in return. Now, it's a funny verse, and I want to say a couple things about it, one of which is this isn't a verse that relates to folk who are, on, who are currently unemployed, right? Paul wasn't saying, if you don't work, you should just stop eating. He refers to it in Thessalonians 2, but it's in the context of if you have the opportunity to work, then do your work. For those who don't have the opportunity to work, Paul was very happy to raise offerings from throughout the church, including those churches in Macedonia, in order to support those who could not find work who were starving of famine in Jerusalem and Judea um, at the time of his great offering. And he actually praises the Philippians, who were also in the same province, for generously supporting his own needs. Right? So there was no sense that if you can't find work, you shouldn't gratefully receive help um, and, be thankful, uh, and be thankful to be able to offer it. As a person who raises support in ministry, I've also had this verse quoted at me, see, you should really work and you shouldn't be dependent on other people. And again, this is a slightly different context because Paul in his other letters is very grateful to receive gifts to support his own ministry. He hasn't ceased working. This is a verse for those people who go, I could just stop working. Parasitically depend on other people, twiddle my thumbs and be used. And he says, don't do that. Work is God's good gift. Engage in it fully. Engage it joyfully. So these two big areas, right, work and sex, it's interesting that Paul frames it in these ways. It's a call to unselfishness, isn't it? First, do it to please God, he says in verse 1. Bring delight to him in the way that you work and in the way that you love one another. And then he frames it, please God and then please other people in verse 9. Now about brotherly love, we don't need to write to uh, Right to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. It's a call to unselfishness in the way that we relate sexually, as way, the way that we work. Please God with it and love one another as you go do so, without taking advantage of each other sexually or financially. It's a call to unselfishness to give yourself to the concerns of other people so that people praise you appropriately for doing the things that God has called you to do. Then it's also, interestingly enough, not just a plea for unselfishness, but it's a plea to growth. He says in verse 1, we're asking you to do this so you can please God more and more and that you can love one another more and more at the very end of verse 10. That For Paul, this is a continual invitation to continue to grow. It's not an area that we will have arrived in. It's not an area that we will have um, gotten to without failure, without flaws, without some degree of shame or discouragement. But his encouragement instead is continue to progress and the holiness that God intends for you. Because one day, as he points out to the people of Philippi, one day you will stand before the Father, and Christ Jesus will complete the work that he began in you. You'll be unashamed and unafraid. So don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. The process of growing toward holiness is before you, and it's an invitation that you can take up. And as you do so, anticipate the smile of your Father, who will one day say to you, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with the small things I gave you. You were faithful with what you were able to understand at the time. And you continued to progress. So be of good heart as you wrestle with what God seems to say to us. As we wrestle with two areas which obsess our thinking, 
often break our hearts, but instead are intended by God for our delight and enjoyment. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm grateful that every um, negative prohibition is actually framed by a positive command. Uh, And as our brother prayed earlier today, um, we've not only been freed from, but we're freed for. We're freed um, from the... uh, from our own ineptitude, um, our own laziness, our own brokenness, our own sin, and the power it has over us. And we're freed to love people. We're freed to give ourselves. We're freed for service, not just from fear. And so, Lord, I pray, uh, as a people, would we feel free to love and to serve the Lord, to love and to serve one another, and to glorify you in all the ways that you've described so that one day we could see the smile on your face because you will be pleased with us, both because of the efforts that we offer you at sacrifice, but also because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us already. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.